12. A plot is planted it presents to the eye a solid mass of green. It is hard to imagine a more beautiful sight than to look down on these fields, which rise in wave above wave of brilliant green, until at last they give way to the yellower billows of cocone grass which cover the mountain slopes. After the transplanting, the grain needs constant attention, at first, to keep it properly weeded and flooded, later, to protect it from animals and birds, hence many workers are always in the fields, but it island nevertheless, the happy time for the people, and if one approaches a group of workers unawares, he will hear one or more singing the dolling, a song in which they compliment or chide the other workers, or relate some incident of the hunt or of village life. Toward midnight little groups will gather in the field shelters to partake of their lunches, to smoke, or to rest, and usually in such a gathering will be a good storyteller who amuses with fables, or tales of adventure, when the rice begins to mature, an even stricter watch must be kept, for, in addition to its other enemies, the rice birds now seek to feed on the crop and, while they are small in size, they often appear in such numbers that they work great havoc. The usual device employed in frightening both birds and animals is a bamboo pole cut into strips at the top, so that, as it is shaken, they strike together, producing a great clatter. Many of these poles are planted, and then all are connected by means of rattan lines which finally lead to the little watch house. Here a man or a boy sits and occasionally gives the lines a sudden jerk, which sets up a clapping over the whole field plate L.I.I. A clever development of this device was seen by the writer in the Ikman River Valley. Here the stream flows swiftly and plunges headlong into pools every few yards. The rattan cord attached to the clappers is fastened to a small raft which is then set afloat in the pool. After a whirl in the eddy it is caught by the swift current, and is carried a few feet downstream, at the same time bending the clappers nearly to the ground, then as the raft enters calmer water, the tension is released and it is thrown violently back into the pool from which it has just drifted, at the same time the clappers fly back into place with a great noise. Another contrivance, used in keeping small birds from the fields, is a bird-like form cut from the bark of a banana or palm tree. Many of these are suspended by lines from bamboo poles, and, as the wind blows them to and fro, they appear like giant birds hovering over the rice. A simple protection against deer is made by bending the white inner bark of bamboo into arches and planting these at intervals along possible places of entry, for it is said that these animals will not approach such a contrivance. Soon after the water is turned into the fields, shells and fish begin to appear even in the higher terraces. Doubtless a considerable part of these come in through the ditches, but the natives insist that most of the fish bury themselves deep in the mud at the approach of the dry season and hibernate until water again appears in the fields. These intruders are prized as food, and to secure them, short dated lines are placed along the edges of the terraces, while each woman has, attached to her belt, a small basket into which she places shells discovered during her work. The men likewise secure fish by means of hooks and lines and also pierce them with short spears fitted with detachable points, but more commonly they shoot them with a small bow and peculiar arrows, the heads of which resemble flattened spoons cut into four or five teeth. As the grain begins to ripen, the land is allowed to dry, and when all is ready for the cutting, the people put on their best garments and go to the fields. Each stall is cut separately by means of a crescent-shaped blade lacom or lacom attached to a small wooden cylinder figure 14. NOS. 3-3-A. This handle is held between the thumb, first and fifth fingers, while the stalk is caught by the second and third fingers, 
and is pulled inward against the steel blade. Many workers grasp the stalt near the head with the left hand, while the cutting blade is used with the right. Both men and women may engage in cutting the rice, but as the latter are much the more dexterous workers, this task is generally assigned to them plate live. The grain is cut so as to leave stalks about 10 inches in length, these are laid in the free hand until a bunch of considerable size has accumulated, when they are bound together with strips of bark. At the end of the day these bundles are carried to the drying yards, where they remain until the whole crop is harvested. A drying yard is a plot of ground surrounded by a bamboo fence of such a height that it is impossible for fowls and the like to gain entrance. When all the bundles are thoroughly dried, they are placed in the granary, and from that time on the handling of the rice is given over to the women. The granaries, or storehouses, of the Tingian and Ilocano are identical plate LV, but, barring the Apoyao, are different from any of the surrounding groups, except when their influence may have spread this peculiar type to a limited degree. It is worthy of note, however, that the granaries of some Sumatran groups are of similar design and construction. Such a storehouse is raised high above the ground on four hardwood poles, the framework is of bamboo and the sides flare sharply from the floor to the grass roof. Within the framework is a closely woven matting of flattened bamboo, which is nearly watertight, but to secure still further protection from moisture, and also to allow for free circulation of air. A rack is built in such a way that the rice is kept several inches from the outside walls, just below the floor. Each post supports a close-fitting pottery jar without top or bottom or a broad disc of wood which effectually prevents the entrance of rodents. To thrash the grain, the woman places a bundle on a piece of carabao hide, and, as she rolls it beneath her feet, she pounds it with a long wooden pestle hollow until all the kernels are beaten loose from the straw. It is then placed in a wooden mortar loose on about a glass form or with straight sides, where it is again beaten until the outside husks are loosened, and the grain is somewhat broken plate LVI. Winnowing is accomplished by tossing the contents of the mortar in shallow traps it now, so that the chaff is blown away, while the grain falls back into the winnower plate LVI. The rice is now ready for cooking, the chaff is collected, and is used as food for the pigs and dogs, while the stalks are saved to be burned, for the ashes are commonly used in lieu of soap. Rice has also come to have great importance, both as a standard of value and as a medium of exchange. A single stalk is known as sangadua. When the stalks are equal in size to the leg, just above the ankle, the bundle is called sangatic. Ten sangatic equals sangabail. One hundred sangatic makes sangaoyan. The measure of cleaned rice is as follows. Two full hands, one coconut shell full, one sopa locano supa, Spanish one eight ganda. Eight sopa, one salop Spanish ganda or about two quarts. Twenty-five salop, one caban. It is customary to pay laborers in rice. Likewise the value of animals, beads, and the like are reckoned and paid in this medium. During the dry season rice is loaned, to be repaid after the harvest with interest of about 50%. According to tradition, the Tingian were taught to plant and reap by a girl named Deopan. This woman, who was an invalid, was one day bathing in the stream. When the great spirit Kabonian entered her body, he carried with him sugar cane and it threshed rice which he gave to the girl with explicit directions for its use. Likewise he taught her the details of the sighing, the most important of the ceremonies. Deopan followed instructions faithfully, and after the harvest and conclusion of the ceremony, she found herself to be completely cured. After that she taught others, 
and soon the Tingian became prosperous farmers. In part I of this volume a reconstruction of the early life of this people was attempted from their mythology. The results seem to indicate that the tales reflect a time before the Tingian possessed terraced rice fields, when domestic work animals were still unknown, and the horse had not yet been introduced into the land, but it was also noted that we are not justified in considering these as recent events. At this time, with the more complete data before us, it may be well to again subject the rice culture to careful scrutiny, in the hope that it may afford some clue as to the source from which it spread into this region. It is possible that the Tengian may have brought it with them from their early home, which may be supposed to have been in southeastern Asia, they may have acquired it through contact with Chinese or Japanese traders, or through commercial relations with the islands to the south, or again it may have developed locally in the Tengian, Igro, and Ifugao territory. It should be noted at the outset that highly developed terrace cultivation is found in Japan and China to the north, in parts of Borneo, in the Nias Archipelago, in Java, Bali, Lombok, Sumatra, Burma, and India proper, and it is probable that all within this broad belt developed from a single origin. When we compare the construction of Igro and Tengian terraces and the methods of irrigation, we find them quite similar. Although those of the former are somewhat superior and of much greater extent, the planting of the seed rice and the breaking of the soil in the high fields are also much alike. But here the resemblances cease. In the lower fields, the Tengian employ the Carabao, together with the plow and harrow, the Igro do not. The Igro fertilize their fields, the Tengian never. In harvesting, the Tengian make use of a peculiar crescent-shaped blade to cut the stalk. The Igro pull each head off separately. The Tengian and Ilocano granaries are of a distinctive type radically different from the Igro, while the methods of thrashing in the two groups are entirely different. Finally, the ceremonial observances of the Tengian, so far as the rice is concerned, are much more extensive and intricate than have been described for the Igro. In a like manner there are many striking differences between the methods of handling the grain by the Tengian and those found in Japan and China. On the other hand, when we come to compare the rice culture of this region with the islands to the south, the similarities are very striking. The short description given by Marsden for Sumatra would, with a few modifications, apply to the situation in Abra. The use of the plow and harrow drawn by Carabao is found in Java and Sumatra. The common reaping knife of both these islands is identical with the Tengian. Although there is a slight difference in the way it is utilized, the peculiar type of granary found in Abra again appears in Sumatra while the Tengian ceremonial acts associated with the cultivation and care of the rice recall. In several instances, details of such ceremonies in Java, if Tengian rice culture did come from the south, through trade or migration, in comparatively recent times we should expect to find evidences of the same culture distributed along the route by which it must have traveled. We find, however, that few terraces exist in Mindanao and northern Borneo, and the former, at least are of recent introduction. There is also negative evidence that such fields were rare along the coasts at the time of the Spanish invasion. In the early documents we meet with frequent statements that the people were agriculturists and raised considerable quantities of rice and vegetables in their clearings, but the writer has discovered only two instances in which mention is made of terraced fields. Had extensive terraces existed on the coast, it seems certain that some notice must have been taken of them. Yet in the mountains of central and northwestern Luzon, in districts remote from coast influences, 
are found some of the most remarkable fields of this type in Malaysia, terraces representing such an expenditure of labor that they argue for a long period of construction. The proof is not absolute, but, in view of the foregoing, the writer is inclined to the belief that the Idru and the Tingian brought their rice culture with them from the south, and that the latter received it from a source common to them and to the people of Java and Sumatra. Many writers who have discussed the rice culture of the East Indies are inclined to credit its introduction to Indian colonists, but Campbell holds to the belief that it was practiced centuries before the Christian era and prior to the Hindu invasion of Java. There seems to be no dissent, however, among these writers to the belief that its introduction antedated the arrival of the European in the Orient by several centuries. The fact that dry land farming, carried on with planting sticks and the like, is still found among the Igru and Tingian, and for that matter all over the Philippines, cannot be advanced as an argument that the irrigated fields are of recent date, for upland fields and primitive tools are still used in Java and Sumatra, where, as we have just seen, the wet field culture is an old possession, magical rites and ceremonies connected with the rice. The importance of rice to this people is nowhere better evidenced than in the numerous and, in some cases, elaborate rites with which its cultivation and care is attended. Some of these observances appear to be purely magical, while others are associated with the consulting of omens, acts of sacrifice, propitiation, and finally of thanksgiving. All are interwoven with tribal law and custom to such an extent that neglect, on the part of the individual, amounts to a crime against the community, and hence is punished with public indignation and ostracism. When a new field is to be prepared, or a granary erected, strict watch must be kept for omens, for should the inhabitants of the spirit world be unfavorable to the project, they will indicate their feelings by sending snakes, large lizards, deer, wild hogs, or certain birds to visit the workers. Should any of these appear, as the task is begun, the place is generally abandoned at once, but if doubt still exists, or it is deemed unfeasible to try to persuade the spirits to reconsider, a small pig will be sacrificed. Its blood, mixed with rice, is scattered about on the ground as an offering, while the medium recites a proper diam. After a suitable time has elapsed for the spirits to partake, the liver of the animal is removed, and is carefully examined cf. Page 307. If the omens are now favorable, the work may be resumed, but should they still be unpropitious, it is folly to proceed, for disaster is certain to follow. The next anxiety is to secure a lusty growth of plants in the seed beds, and to accomplish this, sticks known as silogigi, are stuck in each plot. The surface of such a stick has been paired so that shavings stand out on it in opposite directions, for such a decoration is pleasing to the spirits, while a piece of charcoal, placed in the notched end, compels the new leaves to turn the dark green of sturdy plants. The first seeds to be planted must always be sowed by the wife of the owner so that they will be fertile and yield a good crop. When a field has been constructed, or when the terraces are ready to receive the plants, a ceremony known as Dalao, is held. The purpose of this is to secure the goodwill of the spirits in general, but more particularly to provide a dwelling place for the powerful being Kaibran, who guards the crops. A medium, accompanied by the family and any others who may be interested, goes to the field carrying a large bamboo pole, bolo branches, Stalks of lono bacon, and suklek. The end of the bamboo is split open, and a silako is constructed to which are attached the other leaves and stalks. The silako is then placed on the dividing ridge of the field, and all is ready for the ceremony. 
unless it is considered wise to also construct a small house Bobavi. If the field is near the village, the latter is generally dispensed with. But if it is distant, the house is erected so that the spirit will accept it as its dwelling, while it is guarding the crop. It is further explained that the spirit then stays in the small house or salako instead of in the rice stalks, and so they are able to grow. A female pig is presented to the medium who, after reciting a proper diam above it, stabs the animal and collects its blood. This is mixed with rice, and a part is at once deposited in the salako, while the balance is placed on a head axe, and is carried about the field. When the whole plot has been traversed, this rice and blood is scattered in all directions while the spirits are besought to come and eat. A part of the company has meanwhile been cooking the flesh of the slain animal, but before any of it is served, a skirt kino mayan is spread at the foot of the silaco, and on it are placed dishes of oil and of cooked rice. After the meal has been eaten, the family gathers up the skirt and dishes, to return them to the village, but the other offerings remain. Rain, like all other things needed, is sent by Kondokland or Kabonian. If it does not come as desired, or if the crop is not progressing favorably, a ceremony known as Komon or Yubaya is held. Each person of the village is assessed a sopra of rice, a bundle of pottery, or a small coin with which pigs, basi, and other things necessary, can be purchased, early in the morning of the appointed day. The mediums, accompanied by many people, go to the guardian stones, oil the head of each, and place a bark band around it. Then having recited a proper diam over a small pig, they slaughter it and scatter its blood mixed with rice among the stones. Likewise they place a dish of basi among them for the use of the spirits. A part of the slain animal is then cooked and eaten, after which all go back to the village, at some appointed place. Rice, eggs, beetle nuts, and a large pig have been assembled, and to this spot the mediums go to conduct the rite known as duwak. Before its conclusion a diam is recited over the pig, which is then killed and prepared for food. Meanwhile the chief medium beseeches the supreme being Kondoklan to enter her body. He comes, and after telling the people what must be done to ensure the crop, he designates some one man who must, on the following morning, celebrate podium. After all the visiting spirits have been given food and drink, a small covered raft bong is constructed, and in it are placed a live chick, a cooked rooster, and other articles of food, for sturdy men carry this to the river and set it afloat while the people shout and beat on gongs to drive away evil spirits who might wish to steal the raft and its contents. The purpose of this offering is to supply food to any spirits who may be unable to attend the ceremony. Early the next morning, the man who has been designated by Kondoklan to perform the podium makes ready, at his own expense, a large pig and cooked rice, and carries these to the fields. He must be dressed in striped garments known as genolet, must carry a head as a and wear on his head the cloth band of the medium, beneath which are thrust to idom, that island chicken feathers notched or decorated with pits of colored thread cf. Page 313, he is accompanied by his wife, attired in a red jacket sinasaya and a skirt pineapple, and by a medium who also wears the idom beneath a headband of sakag, while the townspeople follow behind, arrived at the field, the medium squats before the bound pig, and holding a spear, beetle nuts, and oil, begins to recite a diam. Meanwhile she strokes the animal from time to time with oiled fingers. This concluded, she stabs the pig, and having mixed its blood with rice, scatters it over the field, calling to the spirits to come and eat, and then to grant a full harvest. 
the people ate part of the animal while in the field, but before returning home, the head of each family receives a small strip of uncooked flesh, which he fastens above the door as a sign that the ceremony has been held. The following day, the owner and the medium return to the field and break a little soil with a spear, and the ceremony is complete. But for some days these two are barred from eating shrimp, carabao, or wild pig. The owner must also pay the medium ten bundles of rice for her assistance in ensuring his own crops, as well as those of the community. Should lightning strike a field or a tree in it, this ceremony is repeated, with the exception that the strips of flesh are not distributed, nor is the soil broken with a spear. In Lumaba, a town strongly influenced by the Igro, the Ubaya regularly precedes the rice planting, as well as the first use of a newly constructed field, while conforming, in general, to that already described, a part of the procedure is somewhat different. On the day before the ceremony, the men go to the mountains and gather lono stalks, one for each house and two for the town gate. The Tareeds are placed crosswise of the entrance to the village and serve as a sign of taboo, and thereafter no one may enter until they are officially removed. To do so would necessitate the repetition of the ceremony, and the offender would be obliged to provide all the things necessary for it. Likewise, no one may wear a hat or prepare food during the period of taboo. The next day is known as Vignas, and at dawn all the men arm themselves with bamboo poles. With these they beat about under the houses and throughout the town, in order to drive away any evil spirits who may be lurking about. Having effectively rid the town, they force the invisible beings ahead of them to the river, where they deposit the poles. They return to the village singing and shouting, and are met at the gate by the women, who hold ladders one on each side of the entrance, so that they meet at the top and thus form a path by which the men may enter without breaking the interdict. At the guardian stones, they pause long enough to sacrifice a pig and a rooster, and offer blood and rice to the spirits, and then they proceed to the center of the village, where they dance to Dick and D.A.N. until dusk. At nightfall a pig is killed, its flesh is divided among the people, and a lonus talk, after being dipped in the blood, is given to a member of each family. This is carried home, and is placed on the outside wall as a sign that the ceremony has been held. If the sun is shining the following morning, the Lakhani will go outside the town to gather wood. Upon his return the people are again free to fish and hunt, but work is forbidden until evening. Should the sun fail to appear, all remain quietly in the village until the Lakhani can remove the taboo by his wood gathering. In Minabo the ceremony is a mixture of the two types just described and is always held at the time of planting and when droughts occur. The procedure at harvest time varies considerably in different districts, but the usual custom is for a woman, from each family, to go to the fields and cut alone until she has harvested 100 bundles. During this time she may use no salt, but a little sand is placed in her food as a substitute. No outsider may enter the dwelling during this preliminary cutting. So strictly is this rule observed that the writer has been absolutely excluded from homes where, on other occasions, he was a welcome guest. In Lumabra and vicinity it is the custom to sacrifice a chicken two days before the harvest begins, and to cook its neck and intestines without salt. These are then divided into nine parts, are placed in dishes, and are carried to the spirit house in the field. At the end of the second day, the feathers of the fowl are stuck into the sides of the structure and the spirits are entreated to grant good harvest and health for the workers. The dishes are then returned to the village, and on the following morning the women may begin cutting, when the rice is ready to be stored. 
The Palpalayam ceremony is held in honor of the spirit of the granary. Vines and shrubs are tied to each supporting post of the granary and above the door, while a bit of sakag is also hidden inside a bundle of rice, which has been placed at each corner pole. Near one post is a small pig with its head toward the east, and over it the medium recites a diam. As usual, the animal is killed, and its blood mixed with rice is offered to the spirits. A part of the flesh is wrapped in banana leaves, and a bundle is buried at the foot of each post. The skull is cooked, and after being cleaned, is hung up inside the roof. The rest of the meat is cooked, and is served with rice to the little company of friends who have gathered. Each guest is also given a few stalks of the rice from the bundles at the corner posts. Just before the new rice is placed in the granary, a jar of basi is placed in the center of the structure, and beside it a dish filled with oil and the dung of worms. Five bundles of polari are piled over these, and the whole is presented to the spirit, who will now allow the rice to multiply until it is as plentiful as the dung. In Benig and nearby villages, all of which are strongly influenced by immigrants from the Cagayan Valley. A small clay house known as Lablaban or Adud is placed with the rice, and from time to time offerings are put in them for the spirit who multiplies the rice play XXIX. Certain restrictions always apply to the granary. It may never be opened after dark, for evil spirits are certain to enter, and the crop will vanish quickly. It can be opened only by a member of the family whom the spirit knows, and should another attempt to remove the grain, sickness or blindness will befall him. So rigorously is this enforced that a bride never opens her husband's granary until he has presented her with a string of beads, which she wears about her neck to identify her. It is further necessary that she receive a similar gift before she eats of his rice, otherwise she will become ill. However, this does not apply to others. Even strangers being federal without this gift being made, a custom which formerly prevailed, but is now falling into disuse, was for the bride and groom to visit the family fields, where the youth cut a little grass along the dividing ridges. He then took up a bit of earth on his head axe, and both tasted of it, so that the ground would yield them good harvests, and they would become wealthy, cultivated plants and trees. Near every settlement will be found a number of small gardens in which a variety of vegetables are grown. Occasionally a considerable planting of bananas will be found, while many villages are buried beneath the shade of coconut trees. But in comparison with rice the cultivation of other crops becomes insignificant. Nevertheless, a considerable amount of foodstuff, as well as of plants and trees used in household industries, are planted in prepared land, while many of wild growths are utilized. The following list is doubtless incomplete but still contains those of special value to this people. Next to rice the commote convolvulus batatas is the most important food product. Occasionally it is raised in the gardens or rice terraces, but, as a rule, it is planted in hillside clearings from which one or two crops of rice have been removed. The tuber is cut into pieces, or runners from old plants are stuck into the ground, and the planting is complete. The vine soon becomes very sturdy. Its large green leaves so carpeting the ground that it even competes successfully with the cogone grass. If allowed, the plants multiply by their runners far beyond the space originally allotted to them. The tubers, which are about the size of our sweet potatoes, are dug up as needed, to replace or supplement rice in the daily menu. Both roots and plants are also cooked and used as food for the pigs and dogs. Abacalacasia and Akram shop is raised, but as it requires a moist soil and hence would occupy land adapted to rice. It is chiefly limited to the gardens, 
it has large fleshy roots which are used like those of the commode, while the leaves and young shoots are also cooked and eaten. Other tubers known as Obidioscoria sp. Gicidioscoria divaricata blanco, Onidioscoria fasciculata, and commas packerheizers angulatus dc are raised to a limited extent in the gardens. Corn, maize, bittle, and red corn. Gauzelandia maize L seems to have been introduced into Aubra in comparatively late times. For despite the fact that it is one of the most important crops, it has neither gathered to itself ceremonial procedure, nor has it acquired a place in the folklore. A considerable amount is raised in the village gardens, but generally it is planted by dibbling in the highland. When ripe, the ears are broken from the stalk, the husks are turned back, and several are tied together. These bunches are then placed over horizontal poles, raised several feet from the ground plate LVII and after being thoroughly dried, are hung from the house rafters. The common method of grinding is to place the corn on a large stone, over which a smaller stone is rocked until a fine flour is produced plate LIX. Stone disc grinders, imported from the coast, are also in use. These consist of grooved stones, the upper of which revolves on the lower. Grain is fed into an opening at the top as needed. Dried corn, popped in the embers of a fire, is much relished by the children. Several varieties of squash, and beans, as well as peanuts money are among the common products of the garden. The former are trained to run over a low trellis or frame to prevent injury to the blossoms from a driving rain. Both blossoms and the mature vegetables are used as food. Among the minor products are ginger, layers in gibberophysinal rusk, and a small melon, locally known as malad, which is used as a sweetening. Sugar cane, anasaccharum is raised in considerable quantity, and is used in making an intoxicating drink known as basi. It is also eaten raw in place of a sweetmeat, but is never converted into sugar. Nowadays the juice is extracted by passing the cane between two cylinders of wood with intermeshing teeth. Motive power is furnished by a carabao attached to a long sweep. This is doubtless a recent introduction, but it has entirely superseded any older method. The cane is raised from cuttings which are set in mud beds until ready to be transferred to the mountainside clearings. These lands are prepared in the same manner as the upland rice fields already described. The men dig shallow holes and set each plant upright, while the women follow, filling the hole with water and then pressing earth in with fingers or toes. In addition to these food crops, considerable, 